Amen. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Welcome. My name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, let me just start by asking a question today. Uh, the question is this. How do you see God? You ever been asked that before? Or you ever just thought about that for a second? Like, how, how do you perceive God? What does he look like? Or who is he? Um, if you're like me, maybe five years ago, six years ago, something like that, if you would have asked me that question, first image that pops up in my mind is Morgan Freeman, right? From Bruce Almighty. You just picture there he is with the perfect voice, and you're just like, yeah, that's, that's got to be what God looks like. Uh, maybe you're a little bit different. Maybe you're into a different movie. Um, Lord of the Rings, maybe Gandalf, right? Like, you shall not pass. Maybe you're just like, God is just this angry old guy with a huge white beard. Maybe, maybe that's how you perceive him. Um, but I have a series of pictures up here. Maybe you see God in one of these roles. First one I'm going to look at is butler. Maybe you see God as a sort of butler. God is kind of, he's there and he exists and he's always at the ready so that you can approach him with any sort of need or desire that you have and then you ask him in expectation or hopes that he will deliver. Maybe you see him as a, a butler, someone who's just ready to serve. Maybe you see it differently. We're going to go down here to the left. Uh, maybe you see him as like a, a therapist. That God is there and God exists for you to come and to express your feelings with, to talk things through, to get advice on life or wisdom as to what you should do. Or, God, I'm, I'm struggling with this family issue or marriage issue, whatever it may be. Uh, maybe you see God as the therapist. He's there for you to talk to on an as-needed basis. Maybe, we're going to go bottom right here, maybe you see God as a father. Maybe your dad is just the best dad in the world. And so when you look at God, you go, God and my dad must be so similar. And maybe God is the father that, you know, he's always there for you. He's coaching you. He's supporting you. You know, he, he cares about you. He provides for you. He protects you. You see, God is a father figure, and that's a good thing. But maybe it takes a different turn. Maybe you look up here and you see the one in the middle. That's the first one that caught your attention. And you see a gavel, and you think, judge. Maybe you see God and you go, you know, God is judgmental. You know, he's the judge and he's always passing judgment and he's telling me what I can't do. He condemns me. He punishes me. Maybe God is not even just judge. Maybe he's judge, jury, and executioner. Maybe that's how you see God. Or maybe this last one, maybe, maybe you just see him as king. God is his ruler. He's authoritative. He's over a, a kingdom that we happen to be in. He's in charge, and he has a plan, and our lives are merely just a part of something beyond our control. This is why I ask you, how do you see God? Because how you answer that question actually determines if you want God. Do you want God? I think there's a lot of people in this room that say yes immediately off the bat. Of course I want God. Of course I want a relationship with God. But that tells us something about how you reacted to the first question. But maybe it judge or king, maybe that comes up and you go, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't really want God. I, I don't really want a relationship with him. I don't really see a need for a relationship with him. And it's true that whatever it is, however you see God, so often we look at God in, in a sort of like he's a means to our end type of relationship. God gets me something that I want. Maybe it's advice, counsel wisdom, maybe it's something like provision, rent, money, a promotion, maybe a job. God, I want the house. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe, I, I don't know, whatever it is, but maybe God provides something. Maybe you look to God to provide some sort of ethics and morality to live by. 
maybe it's purpose. You look to God to provide purpose and meaning for your life and for your existence. Maybe that's how you see God. The reason why it's important how you answer these questions or the fact that you do start asking these questions uh, is because we're actually in a series right now in which we're shifting the culture here at Frontline. And uh, so often, like churches or maybe here in West Michigan or maybe even all over the world, just depends on, I guess, where you look. But so often, churches are full of people that come in who attend. Attending is the goal. You show up, you sit through a service, you sing some songs, maybe you just listen to the songs or you, you listen to a, a message, and then you go back out and you live life just the way you did when you walked in. It doesn't change much. It doesn't lead to a deeper relationship with maybe church people, other disciples, or God, or those who don't yet know him. It kind of just, hey, I just got to check the box and I'm here. Maybe some of you, that's every week. Maybe others, it's every once in a while. Maybe others, it's once or twice a year. And others may just never. How you answer those first two questions says a lot about how you see God and whether or not you would want a relationship with him. So this culture shift that we're making is not so much about, hey, we want, we want to change you or, or manipulate or anything like that. What we want is as we read through Scripture and as we read through the Bible and we see the relationships that Jesus had in his life, we want our relationships to mirror that. So that when we're reading the Bible, we're going to open it up today, we're going to read. But as you read, you see the lives of Jesus and you see the lives of his disciples and how they're living. And then you look at your life and you go, oh, it totally matches. It's actually like you could insert my name into the story and it would fit perfectly. This is the shift that we're moving towards. And so you picked, if today's your first day, you picked a great day to be here um, because we're really diving into the first category, which is reaching. Um, as Brian was just talking about, it's our relationship with God. So next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about relationships with the church, other church people, and then relationships with people outside the church. But uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up for me. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And Acts is, it's not so much like a wood chopping axe, but it's A-C-T-S, uh, the Acts of the Disciples or the Apostles after Jesus um, arose in heaven. So let me set up the story for you, the context. And if you want to pull out your phone too, totally cool. Um, you could Google it, just like Brian was talking about. Type in Acts 2. We're going to start at verse 36. Um, but the passage in which we're about to dive into, you need to understand the story behind it. You need to understand the conflict that has been going on and the things that were said and the things that people expected because at this point in the story, the narrative of Jesus is Jesus was born, right? We just celebrated this um, for Christmas. So Jesus was born. 30 years later, at age 30, he starts his ministry. For three years, Jesus travels around. He starts healing people. Uh, he starts um, doing miracles. He starts changing people's lives. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's proclaiming. He's traveling. But the thing that Jesus did that all of a sudden bothered a whole lot of people all at once was Jesus made the statement, I am the Son of God. And the Jewish people, this is interchangeable, Jews and Israelites, the Jews or the Israelites had a, been long expecting a Messiah from God because they are an oppressed people. They've been oppressed for hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years. They've been oppressed. And so what was promised to them through different prophecies was God will provide you a Messiah that will restore Israel. That the Messiah will come and he will restore Israel and restore God's people. And so in, these, in the, the situation that the Israelites were in, they were under the oppression of a Roman government. A harsh, strict, 
domineering type leadership. They were fearful. They were often abused. They were taken advantage of. They were closely monitored and controlled, and their lives were very risky under the Roman rule. They didn't know what their future held because it could change at the, at the drop of a hat. So they'd been expecting a Messiah, right? But they're, they're experiencing fear. They're experiencing pain. They're experiencing frustration because it's year after year after year of still no Messiah. Well, now Jesus enters the scene. And the picture in their mind that they had of who their Savior would be and what he would look like actually didn't match Jesus. That the two images, Jesus in front of them, and what they perceived the Messiah would look like, didn't align. So when Jesus said, I am the Son of God, it didn't just bother them. You know, they didn't just go home and post something on Facebook about it, like, I'm super mad right now. It didn't bother them like that. It actually, it like snapped them on the inside. Anyway, how dare you claim to be the Son of God? How dare you? The deserved punishment for that is death. And so these people hated Jesus. The very people that Jesus came to save hated him. So fast forward the end of Jesus' three years of ministry, Jesus is turned over to the authorities, and it was actually the church authorities. Jesus is handed over. They beat him, they flogged him, and then they, they handed him over to the Roman government, and the Roman government's like, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do? And, and here's the deal. We'll make you, we'll make you a deal, all the, the Jews, the Israelites, and just imagine you're being there. They said, okay, we're going to release one prisoner. We'll either release Jesus a man who we can't find fault in, we can't find one instance where he broke the law or sinned, or we can release this known murderer, you know, like today's average of like a serial killer. Which one are you more comfortable with releasing? And the people in anger and fury and frustration screamed Barabbas. We'd rather have a serial killer among us than someone who claims to be the son of God. So they turned him over. Jesus was nailed to a cross. He hung in front of all of his disciples, these guys that he had spent three years with, camping, teaching, hiking, fishing, teaching, healing, you name it. Jesus did all these things with the disciples, and now they're all looking at their friend, their leader, their pastor and mentor, as he's hanging on a cross in front of them, struggling to breathe his last breaths, and Jesus dies sends them into a scare. They hide. They disappear. Jesus gets buried in a tomb. And three days later, Jesus not only did the unthinkable, but the impossible. Jesus came back from the dead. He showed himself to his disciples and he said, it's me. I promise. Look. Look at my wrists. Look at my feet. Look at my side. You see all the wounds that you watched them do to me? They're still here, but I'm alive. Jesus spent the next 40 days with his disciples teaching them. And you can imagine, right, at this point, you're, you're hanging on every word he says because he is the only person in history that you've seen died, not even just died a peaceful death, a brutal death, and he came back three days later. So they're hanging on every word. And what it says here in, in Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in chapter 2, Acts 1, it says Jesus kind of went up on this mountainside. And he's up on the mountainside and he's looking at a group of people. It's about 70 in number. And he's looking at 70 of his closest friends and his closest followers. And he says this, hey, guess what? 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You can imagine their response. Duh. You're the only person we've ever seen do a whole lot of stuff. We, you got our vote on that one. And then he says this, Therefore, go into all the world and make what? Disciples of all nations. Baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. And right in front of their very eyes, 70 witnesses, Jesus begins to ascend and rises up, and it says he disappeared into the clouds, and he was gone. So the disciples, this group of people, they turn around and they start walking back into the city where they were met with crowds of thousands of people. And this is where we start. Acts 2, starting in verse 36, Peter, the lead disciple, steps up and he speaks. He addresses to this crowd. He says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You know who was in this crowd? The people that were screaming Barabbas' name just weeks earlier. The people in this crowd were the ones that were just so furious and angry and demanded that Jesus not only be imprisoned, but that Jesus be crucified that he be tortured a sinner's death. They were screaming and demanding it. And remember what I said earlier, these were the people Jesus was sent to save. And so Peter says this and he says, hey, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. They all knew who he was talking about. This Jesus, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37 says this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? This word, uh, cut to the heart, it's one word in Greek, and caveat for you, just so you know, I am no Greek scholar at all, okay? I took it for one year. It was the worst year of my life. I barely made it through, but I know just a little, and so I'm going to share a little bit with you. Uh, But this word, cut to the heart, is actually katanuso. Everybody say katanuso with me. Katanuso, you know Greek, well done. So this, is, this word is really interesting because katanuso, sometimes in Greek, a translation to English just doesn't do it justice, the word that they meant to convey. That there's, there's a word like this, katanuso, it means to pain the mind sharply, to pierce, to agitate, especially in regards to sorrow. We don't really have a word like that. So translators did the best they could and they said they were cut to the heart. But these people, when they heard that their Savior their Messiah promised to them hundreds and thousands of years earlier was the same man that they had just killed. They were devastated. They were crushed. Imagine the outlook on life where you're just waiting in anticipation going, there's someone who's coming and they'll restore Israel. They'll restore us as a people. That they'll, they'll save us. This, whoever this Messiah is, they will save us from our misery. And your hope just dissipated. Because you swore weeks earlier, there's no way this could be the Son of God. And now here you are going, we just made a horrible mistake. Here's the question I want to ask. How could that happen? How could the king of the universe, 
the Son of God be right in front of them, and they couldn't see him? You ever wonder that question? You know, like put yourself in the story, right? So often it's easy. I do this all the time. Well, if I was there, I would have noticed. I would have been able to tell. I would have seen the signs. Yet I don't think that's the case. But here's, here's the answer to the question. And this is, this is what I'm excited really to dive into today. Is that the people of Israel deal with something that we also deal with today. And back, way back in Genesis, very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 describes God's creation of the world. But Genesis 3, the page turns and talks about how sin entered the world through humanity's rebellion against God. And when sin came into the world, sin reaped a ton of havoc on everything. It's when disease came in. It's when hardship came in. It's when pain came in. But then also something else came in, something called distortion. So as we look at these lenses, these are a bunch of sunglasses up here, but they're designed to be lenses. When sin entered the world, something that happened to humanity is their vision was impaired. They could no longer see things for the way that they actually were, that, that because of their sin, because of the separation from God, now when we look, when we see, whether it's ourselves, whether it's God, whether it's other people, when we see, we see through a filter. It's like wearing sunglasses. As I look at you right now, I only have one pair of sunglasses on, right? There's only one layer separating my eyes from you. If I take them off, I can see you just the way you are, but when I put them on, you're slightly distorted, just slightly. But here's the thing about sunglasses. I'm going to ask you all this, and you're going to respond, of course. Isn't it true that often when you're wearing sunglasses, or you're wearing contacts, or you're wearing reading glasses, that after a certain amount of time, you tend to forget they're there? Is that true? Of course, thank you. Got some response here. But as these glasses are on, think about the Israelites. Their glasses are on. Sin is in the world, and because of their sin, they can't see God for who he really is with this filter on. But it's not the only one. There's actually more filters. Here's another one. Pain. So many of us have pain in our lives. This is pain that maybe happened recently, but oftentimes pain that leads to a lens in which you see the world or you see life or you see God, pain like that that is that deep actually tends to happen in the early years of life. It tends to happen as a child. It tends to happen as an adolescent, maybe even a young adult. And it's things like abuse, things like neglect, things that, that impact you or hurt you so deeply that you say this, I'll never let that happen again. And all it is, is it's a lens. And it's a lens in which you now see the world through. You see life through it. And after a certain amount of time, you tend to forget it's there. So we have some other filters that we also see through. Here's another one. Fear. So many people in our world live a life of fear. It just comes out of them, right? All this stuff with North Korea or with our government or with social issues or with the internet, whatever it is, finances, we just fear. We fear loss. We fear pain. We fear the effects of sin. We fear. Let's keep going. How about anger? Things that have happened that lead to this emotion called anger in which at a certain point, 
we, we can't control it anymore. We just feel it, or this is the lens in which we see. We also have injustice and sadness. These aren't all of the lenses, but they're certainly some of them. And as we talk about lenses, here's something else that's true. When you wear sunglasses, you typically wear one pair at a time, right? The thing about lenses in which we see the world or we see God is actually we tend to stack them. So I have my lens of sin. I can't always control that one. Sometimes you just inherit it. You're born into it. But then you add fear, and all of a sudden my vision gets significantly more impaired. That when I see you, my vision, it was at 100% with nothing. Then I put the first pair on, it's probably 90%, maybe 95, just darker. But as soon as I add this one, I drop 70, 75%. Well, let's add fear. And immediately, you all become a dark blur. That through three lenses, I can't see you when you're right in front of me. And that's just three. Then you add more things like anger, injustice, sadness. These lenses tend to stack and stack and stack. Now think about the Israelites. The Israelites have been abused. They've been taken advantage of. They've been longing for a Savior because of the pain that they've been inflicted. They're angry at their oppressors. They're tired of the injustice, and they're sad for what's happening to their people that they love. They have all of these lenses, and what happens is, if I would put on every one of those lenses, if I would put them on, I couldn't see you if you were right in front of me. Now think about Jesus. Here are the lenses in which they see the world, and here are the lenses in which they see their expected Messiah. Jesus comes up, Jesus enters the scene, and they don't see him because of what's happened to them, because of how they view the world and how they view life. Let's get more personal here for a second. Things like abuse, I'm talking about us now. Things like abuse, abandonment, times when our hearts are broken, death of a loved one, and then I hate this one, sexual abuse. I learned some horrible statistics this week that I'm going to share with you. Um, 15 to 25% of the general population in our country has suffered from sexual abuse at some point in their lives. Do you know that's a quarter of us in this room? That every fourth person would be a yes, that's me. Here's where it gets worse, though. Foster care. If you talk about the foster care system, 57% of young boys have suffered from um, sexual abuse and 83% of young girls. Do you know what that does to your vision? To your outlook on life? You cement a lens to your face so secured that again, after a while, you don't even realize it's there, but it leads to so many different emotions and behaviors that you don't understand. And maybe even now you go, wait a minute. Stuff that I deal with now actually might be linked to stuff that happened a long time ago. So here's the Israelites, and they're struggling with this. And here's the question for us, because we struggle with the same thing. How then can you see God for who he is? If you have all of these lenses, what's the remedy? 
How can I see him for who he is, not who I, I see myself through? Here's a quote for you. We don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. That the experiences in our life or the people that have shaped us or what we've been through actually determines what we see, not for what it is itself. So how do we remedy that? It's actually a simple solution, and it's a churchy answer. Any guesses? Jesus. That we look through the filter of Jesus. Because God is, is often this concept that many of us would have a different response if we ask, oh, what do you think, or who do you think God is? What is he like? What does he look like? Um, I remember when I was in college, uh, I went down to Panama City Beach during spring break. Uh, but it was a mission trip, I promise. And uh, our trip, we actually had to go on the beach and talk to people about our faith and our relationship. And it was basically just, you ask questions. This is what I learned really quickly. I would ask someone, hey, are you a Christian? Overwhelmingly, the response, yeah, of course. You know what my follow-up question was? Oh, great. Do you believe there's a God? That eliminated all of them. You know, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. I don't really know what he's like. I don't have an idea of what, what this God looks like or what he could be like. How we see God for who he actually is is in the person of Jesus. That when we look through the filter of Jesus, everything actually becomes clear the way that it actually is. We don't see it anymore as we are. We see it as it is through the lens of Jesus. When we see clearly, when we see Jesus clearly, it changes everything. So for me, uh, first time that this actually hit home, um, I was at a conference. And this conference, I was in college and I'd shared this with you before. I was struggling with, what am I going to do with my life? I have no idea. Maybe I'll be a doctor. Two weeks of biology. I'm like, is science the only thing doctors do? Because this is horrible. I hate this. So I changed my major. No longer a doctor. I was like, I'll go be a teacher. I hate school. So that was a miss, right? One month later, I changed my major again. I had no idea what I was doing. I lacked purpose. I lacked clarity. I lacked direction. But here's the other thing. I lacked a relationship with God. Because what I had realized is for decades, I had been angry and running from and fighting a God not that existed, but a God that I had created. That I didn't actually see Jesus for who Jesus was. I just painted some other picture of what I thought God was like. And here's some descriptions of what the Bible depicts Jesus as or what Jesus depicts himself as here. If you want to write these down, this is a great time to write these down. John 10, 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. John 6.35 says this, I am the bread of life. Jesus is talking, bread at this point is a staple in this culture. And Jesus goes, I'm a staple for life. You need me for sustenance. You need me for nourishment. You need me for growth. Hebrews 4.15 talks about Jesus who was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. He was tempted just like us, yet he didn't sin. John 9, 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Where darkness exists in the world, and none of us will argue, darkness exists in our world. But Jesus says, hey, I'm light. And darkness and light can't coexist. And when I am there, darkness dissipates. And here's the last one. This is my favorite. 
Isaiah 9, 6, talking about Jesus, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That he's a God that you can rely on, that you can trust in, a God that brings peace and not conflict, and a God who's mighty. He's strong. So when I'm at this conference, um, what hit home for me is I'm, I'm hearing this pastor speak for the first time, and maybe I've shared this with you before, um, but it's this passage in Luke 7. Jesus and his disciples are walking. They're traveling from one place to another, and from a far way off, they actually see a funeral taking place. And funerals aren't fun. I mean, all of us know that. Funerals are, are really tough situations. But this one was especially tough because it was a funeral for a young boy. And what compounds the issue is it wasn't just a funeral for the young boy, but really, if you want to think about it, it was his mom that was dealing with the most pain because it says the mom was a widow. So she had already went through the, the suffering and death of her husband and burial of her husband. Now she's doing it again with her son. And they're carrying him out. They're in this funeral procession. And Jesus and his disciples roll up. And if this ever happened today, people just imagine the feelings. Jesus says, let's interrupt this funeral. Here, totally inappropriate. There, totally inappropriate. And Jesus walks up and he stops the procession. And he walks straight to the mom. And he looks her in the eyes and he says, hey, don't cry. You can imagine what you would feel like as a parent in that situation. Some nobody telling you, hey, don't cry. You don't know what I just lost. You don't know what I just went through. You don't know what my future holds now because I lost all status and society and provision for my life. Jesus says, don't cry. And he walks over and he touches the boy. And he speaks to him and he says, get up. Right in front of their very eyes, the boy opens his eyes, sits up, Jesus helps him off the stretcher, hands him to his mother. And I'm on the edge of my seat, right? This pastor's telling me the story, and I'm like, why have I never heard this? I mean, I'm seeing Jesus has compassion and, and kindness and love, and just, he just explodes with, like, sincerity. Like, he, he wants to help people. He wants to be there. He's so sincere, but he's powerful. And this pastor looks to this crowd of people, and he says, here's the thing about the story is it's your funeral. And immediately I got it. And immediately I understood that I was the boy on the stretcher that was being carried out in my own funeral because of the lenses in which I saw the world and especially in which I saw God. That the way that I saw God was he was manipulative, he was controlling, he was angry, he was judgmental. He didn't want a relationship, he wanted to control, and I wanted nothing to do with that. But at this moment, the lenses disintegrated because I saw who God was through the person of Jesus. How many of you have ever heard of the company Enchroma? Nobody. Okay, a couple people, there we go. So Enchroma is this crazy company that kind of came out a couple years ago, and they created a pair of glasses by accident. We're working on lenses, and, and the thing that you need to know is that actually there's a lot of people in our world that suffer from colorblindness. Do you know this? People who suffer from colorblindness. I looked up the statistics today. 9% of men in our world suffer from colorblindness or color deficiency, and half of a percent of women. Seems a little unfair, if you ask me. So 9% of men, 
half a percent of women. I'm talking to Brian last night, our lead pastor, going, did you know that like 9% of men in our world suffer from colorblindness or deficiency? And he goes, yeah, I'm one of them. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, dude. Like I pull up to a stoplight and I see red, yellow, and blue. And I'm like, really? And my first thought was, dude, like as a kid, red light, green light must have been horrible. It's like, he's just sitting there standing. It's like waiting, like I don't get it. But these glasses, what they actually do is when you put them on, there's video, you can look these up, I dare you. Type in Enchroma. And on YouTube, people who have been colorblind their entire life, who have suffered from a lack of ability to see things clearly for the way that they are, people gift them, right? Like families, they go, hey, because they're expensive glasses. They buy them, they give them. And so the, uh, there's a picture in my mind, there's an older gentleman who'd lived his entire life without seeing full color. And he takes the glasses and he puts on the glasses and he just, he's taking it all in, right? He looks around and the emotion gets to his heart and he breaks down and starts crying. Why? Because it's beautiful. Because for the first time, he can see something as it is, not as he is. They're unbelievable glasses. There's a guy that came up after first service. This is unreal. He said, hey, I have them. I have Enchroma glasses. And here's the thing that you need to know is that these glasses, after you wear them for an extended amount of time, your vision actually changes because you don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain. And he said, I can take my glasses off now and I can walk around and I can see colors the way that they are because my vision has changed. Do you know what these glasses are for you? It's Jesus. Changes the way you see the world. Changes the way you see other people. Changes the way that you see purpose in life. It changes the way you see your job. Sees your, how you see your neighborhood. It, it changes your marriage. It changes parenting. It changes everything. All you need is the right lens. So I want to go back to passage that we were reading. These people look at, at the apostles, right? The Jesus they crucified, they say this in 37, what should we do? Verse 38, Peter responds. Peter says this, repent and be baptized every single one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your, say it with me, sins. It says repent. Change your ways, change your actions, turn around forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord God will call with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them save yourselves from this corrupt generation do you know what the generation is that he's talking about the generation that has lens upon lens upon lens upon lens plastered to their face and they forgot said, save yourself from this generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Get this, in about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. I want to give you an opportunity today. Because like me, years ago, I'm sitting in this auditorium hearing the speaker and finally the lenses disintegrated and I put the appropriate lenses on 
which was Jesus, and I could see God for who he really was. And they gave me a challenge, and they said, if this is you, if you go, this is the first time that I've understood who Jesus is and who he is in my life. I'm going to ask you to stand. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do here. If that's you, if you go, today is the first day that I got a clear vision of who God is through the person of Jesus, I'm going to ask you in a second when we pray just to raise your hand. Or maybe if you've been here, if you've been attending church or you, you've just, you've had that experience before, like you saw a glimpse of Jesus, but then life happened. A series of sad or significantly harsh or abusive situations unfolded and more of these lenses got plastered on and you needed a reminder to get back. Like, okay, Jesus, I'm back. I see you for who you are. God, I see you for who you are. Maybe that's you. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And the last one is baptism. What Peter said, repent, change your ways and be baptized. And in a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand during the prayer. We're going to pray for you. We're going to support you as a church. So would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes with me and just pray as we pray before our Father? God, we just come to you today grateful for the opportunity to study your word. Grateful for the opportunity to see you for who you are. To understand who you created us to be, but to see your character in flesh through Jesus. Father, so many of us bring so much history, so much baggage, so much sin that clouds our ability not just to see other people, not just to see you, but even how we see ourselves. God, I pray that you would do a work in all of us today, that you would just reveal yourself, that you would surround us with your presence, that you would remind us that you are, you are our king, but you're also our father. in this room right now and you've made a decision today that I understand who Jesus is with your head still down with your eyes still closed if, if you made a decision for Jesus today or if you're coming back to him or if you go hey now is the time that I need to be baptized I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right now raise your hand Father you, you see the hands you see the hearts of the people here that just want to know you and they want to see you and I ask that you would bless them Bless them with your presence. Draw them close to you. And Father, use their families and use this church to surround them and equip them and support them as they pursue a relationship with you that they could see you for who you are, not who we make you out to be, but that we could see you for exactly who you are. God, we know this changes everything. But we pray that we would be a church where people could constantly come into presence with you, that people could see you and that people would take this knowledge, take this life-giving word and take it to the rest of the world. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.